0: Hello, and welcome to episode 18 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman, and with me here, as always, is my co-host, the prolific
1: tennis podcaster, Carl Bialik. Hi, Carl. Hey, Jeff. I was glad I was able to squeeze you into my prolific tennis podcasting schedule.
0: I know. You are nonstop tennis podcasting, and I'm, I'm glad you're able to join me here. Um, for those of you who are only listeners of the Tennis After Act podcast and not yet listeners of Carl's podcast, 30 Love, for one thing, I don't know how you did that. That's a, a bizarre path to podcast awareness, but definitely should check out Carl's efforts and all the great guests he's been lining up lately with, I am told, more to come. So we have a lot to cover since this is our first podcast in September, and there has been a little bit of professional tennis played in the meantime, and it will be our last podcast for a month. So we have. Four months of tennis minus the 37-minute offseason to cover in today's podcast. So, Carl, let me start with a really, a really big question. We just saw Nick Kyrgios uh, win in Brisbane against a mm, kind of an easy draw, but we won't take too much away from him. Uh, he had kind of a, a, a sad end to, to his 2017 season. He didn't play a role in the World Tour Finals because his, 2017 season wasn't good enough. What's? I know you're way more excited about Curios than I am. <laughs> Tell me what what do you see in Curios? What do you expect from him in the Australian Open? I mean, share your enthusiasm with us and and give me an idea of what the
1: scope of, of his potential that you know generates your enthusiasm is. Yeah, this is gonna be an uphill climb because as you've made clear, you do not share my enthusiasm. He. He always worries me physically. Like one, The reason that he didn't come close to qualifying the World Tour Finals, well, you could give several reasons, but ultimately the reason he didn't even have a chance to really try is injuries really slowed his season. I mean, he started the season so well, and he also later in the season, when healthy, made the Cincy Final, but he just was not at 100% physical condition for a lot of the season. The year before, you could say it was more about his head, And, you know, getting not giving full effort at times. And there were some episodes like that in 2017, but it was more just about not being physically fit to play, which was a shame. I mean, he had two consecutive matches blowing Djokovic off the court, not, not even, I think, facing a break point. And he beat Nadal and Cincy. Rafa didn't lose that often last year, but that was, that was one of his losses. Uh, he played an incredibly exciting, I think, match of the year, and I think the ATP agreed with me, semi against Federer in Miami, which he lost after maybe having a match point, certainly was three tiebreakers in a best-of-three match. He had a match point against Federer in Laver Cup, which didn't count for ATP points, and maybe didn't count much with you generally but certainly felt like both players were giving full effort so in terms of his performance against the best of the ATP last year and of the year before he was right up there last year and in terms of his game when he's healthy I find it really exciting he still is prone to some mental lapses but those can sometimes be in the service of really entertaining shots and shot selection Um, he can do kind of everything on the court he has incredibly easy power where sometimes it looks like he's breaking all the rules of tennis technique, but he can still slap winners from both ends while doing it. He has amazing touch at net. His serve I guess can be boring if you don't like, you know, lots of aces and quick holds, but I think it's very exciting when he goes for broke on a second serve and and hits the line at 120 miles an hour. Uh, I li- I like his game and I think he's also showing some of the more of the upside of his personality off the court whereas before we were mostly hearing about the downside of that personality so I I hope he stays healthy and stays a factor he did beat world number three Grigor Dimitrov in Brisbane in the in the semis uh, 6-1 in the second set uh, to force a third he had a lot of up and down matches but when he was playing well he was he was pretty hard to play with
0: well you mentioned Grigor Dimitrov as world number three which I'm guessing was we're emphasizing that partly ironically um, or surprisingly,
1: and, some, somewhere in there.
0: Okay, so well, I think we all agree we don't think of Dimitrov as an established top three player just yet. But we'll, we'll come back to that. There's lots to say about the state of the ATP rankings right now. With Kyrgios, I, we've been having this conversation off podcast for the last, I don't know, month or so about your enthusiasm for Kurios and my enthusiasm for players who are not Nick Kurios. So I've, I've gone back and watched a few of his 2017 matches um, both to kind of see what the, whether I'm missing something, to add some more data to the match charting project, stuff like that. Uh, one interesting thing I noticed, the last match I charted of his, I guess two matches ago actually, was from Indian Wells when he beat Djokovic. As you point out, he, he, he didn't exactly wipe Djokovic off the court, but he did, he, he did look like a superior player. He looked more confident than Djokovic did. But they, they showed a, a useful stat on, on that broadcast that during that, it, either 2017 at Indian Wells or just that match, I don't remember which, he was taking 26 seconds between points, whereas the year before in the match they had data for, he was taking 16 seconds between points. And I think my curious impressions were a little bit out of date because I remember him sometimes just going into, into speed play mode when he would barely have the ball in his hand before he'd serve. And then occasionally he'd realize, oh, shoot, this is an important match, this professional tennis thing. Maybe I'll take a breath between serves and then go into sort of Nadal mode, super slow serving. Um, But it seems in the matches I've watched from the last six to maybe 12 months, it does seem like he's settled down a little bit. And I don't know whether we can extrapolate from that to anything personality-wise or maturity-wise. But that does seem like a step in the right direction to be taking every point a little bit more seriously. But you point out there's some up and down matches. Um, he's he's played very well against some top players, which implies that he's had some some disappointing matches against players who he should be beating. What do you think that means for the Australian Open, in both in the sense that he has to win seven matches, some of which are would have to be against very good opponents, maybe even better than world number three, Gregor Dimitrov, and the fact that he'll have to win those matches in five setters, where... In a way, that cancels out the effects of up and downs. I mean, you have some time to come back up, but obviously other players have time to take advantage of your downs as well. So, what
1: do you think? Is is Curios an actual threat to win a slam at this point? I think so, just in the sense that the ATP is pretty open, and some of the guys we were hoping would be back for the Australian Open either aren't ready yet, such as Nishikori and Murray. We already know aren't playing, or are probably not going to be threats just because they're not ready to be. I mean, I, as much as Djokovic has been great at the Australian Open and as much as Federer showed last year it was possible to win it as your first tournament back after a while away, I'm, I'm still a little concerned about Djokovic's form and, and, and fitness like really being ready just because there were some concerns that he w- wouldn't even be ready to play, which we didn't hear about from Federer last year. Uh, so I think the field is pretty open I think Curios has has shown he can play best of 5 better than some of the other youngsters. I mean, Team has not done much outside the French Open at the Slams. Zverev hasn't done much anywhere at the Slams. Curios has made a couple, at least a couple of quarterfinals including one at the Australian Open a few years ago. As you say, very much dependent on who he's playing and whether he's playing down to that player's level or up to that player's level. One of the oddities of curios 's mere 14, actually 12 matches in the main draw of the Australian Open in his career, he's 8-4, and four, which is pretty good. Two of those matches are five setters, 8-6 a victory and 10-8 a loss against Andrea Seppi, who I love but who has never been a top-10 player or, or big threat on hard courts. So it shows that he can be very up and down, even against an opponent he should beat, and then he can come out. And yeah, maybe he didn't blow Djokovic off the court in those two matches last year, but I just tend to consider when he's never in danger of being broken and wins in straight sets, that's that's a pretty dominant performance against probably the best returner of all time. Um, a quick note, by the way, on the, on the time issue. I maybe am the only person in the world who follows this stuff as much as you do, how long players take between points. And you know, did some quantitative studies on this in the past. And Curious was always one of the very fastest. And I interviewed him about it at the French Open a few years ago, and and it was, he made clear it was a very deliberate thing uh, that he did, much like players like Sam Querrey, Bernard Tomic, other guys who felt like it was an advantage for them that they could race through their games and the returner would not be able to keep up with their pace. But I agree that he does seem to get some advantage from taking more time. 26 seconds is kind of unconscionable and impossible to sit through, at least for me as a fan. And it was a very notable contrast when he was playing Federer in Miami last year. And it does seem like he settled down. In fact, against Harrison in the Brisbane final, Kyrgios was the one who was constantly waiting and wondering where his opponent was. Like He'd be up ready to serve, and Harrison would would be sitting past time being called Harrison took five minutes between sets when when Kyrgios was just waiting on court so it's definitely been a sign that he is ready to play at a fast pace but maybe not at the breakneck pace that he was once and yeah maybe he has sort of settled down come to accept that even that he loves basketball more this is the sport he's got the, the 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 possibilities in and the gifts in and that he's willing to actually embrace what that means for his life and and um, t- take what that brings good and bad so i'm i'm optimistic for him you know who knows he could have a total meltdown at the australian open and get suspended for six months and make me regret it or he could lose in the first round but i would put him in probably the 10 top players who have a chance i think there's some slams in recent years where you wouldn't go past number four or five on that list and give them much of a chance but i don't think this is this is one of those majors because other than Defending champion Federer and probably defending runner-up Nadal. There aren't too many obvious favorites, and I I wouldn't give either of those guys more than like a 25% chance of winning.
0: Well, and even Nadal, um, we haven't seen him play yet this year. He's he's supposed to be in one of the exhibitions, I think this this week, but. I mean, who knows? He, the last match he played was the loss against Golfan in the World Tour Finals, after which he withdrew. So, and his knees didn't look good in know, that
1: match, and there's been a lot of talk of his knees not being great. So, yeah, I mean, I think given that Federer looked really good at Hopman Cup and Nadal hasn't played, Federer is probably the big favorite, which is weird. I didn't expect even when he won last year that he'd be coming into this year as the big favorite at the Australian Open. Yeah,
0: n- not at all. There, it, It's mostly just a whole bunch of people who you can't really bet on to win a tournament not anybody who you would get excited about to win a tournament so for someone like curios or really any number of other guys in the field uh, this seemed like it could be a big chance but I mean, to kind of close the loop on on curios i'm sure we'll come back to this topic in future episodes as we see more of what he can do hoping he stays healthy this season and and maybe for, for the entire year um i'm i'm so I certainly think he's good for tennis to have someone like that around, both in the sense that he he's not in, in, off the court in interviews, he's he's not like Milos Raonic, he's not sort of like a PR bot. So he actually is, is candid, he's he's honest, he says interesting things. But also on court, having someone who for years now has been a threat against absolutely anyone, and that's another thing that's been missing from men's tennis. We had so many years where if one of the big four stepped on court, you He might be interesting to watch, but you could be pretty sure that they were going to advance to the next round. And Kyrios is one of the few guys who, every time he steps on court, he could pull that upset. There's fewer guys around now he might play against whom it would constitute an upset, but having those guys in the sport is definitely a plus. And maybe I'm coming around a little on his game. I'm not sold on that, but uh, that'll give us plenty to talk about in the future.
1: Was that Miami Semi one of the ones that you charted, or that someone charted?
0: Someone charted it. I don't remember if it was me. It might have been um, been Edo. Edo is Edo Salvati, who's responsible for um, for the Italian translations on Tennis Abstract and also a huge number of, of match charts. He's been the driving force behind getting all the Grand Slam finals charted, and now he's working hard on the Masters finals that we're making a ton of progress on. But I think that was him.
1: He's also a big Federer fan, like, like many of us are. You know what, you've now Um, talked about charting this time because I prompted it, but a couple of times. Do you want to just quickly explain for anyone listening who doesn't know what what that is, what that means? Oh yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, Charting refers to the Match Charting Project, which I started maybe a little more than four years ago now, which seems like a really long time. But basically, it's it's an effort to track every shot of of every charted match. So in, in a perfect world, we get volunteer charters doing every match on the ATP and WTA tours. As it is, that's a little bit far-fetched, but we are charting over a thousand matches a year, and we doesn't have to be exclusive of you, the listener, or you, the podcast co-host, Carl. <laughs> um, anyone can do it. In fact, we would love it if, if you joined in. It's it, it's not the easiest thing to pick up, but it does take it, it takes a little bit of time to learn the the codes for shots and directions, but Carl, I know you were able to do it for a project a couple of years ago. And I, th- I think we're, we might be nearing 100 contributors, might be more like 80 people who've contributed over the years, uh, and anywhere from you know, hundreds of matches in the case of someone like Ado to a couple matches in the case of, uh, of dozens of others. And there, there's so many, I mean, obviously, there's so many professional tennis matches every week, as we're seeing right now. Uh, also, so many archived matches on YouTube from the past, um, There's there's a huge amount of of data out there waiting to be compiled, and the Match Charting Project allows us to actually put that all in a standardized form. So if you go to Tennis Abstract, click on one of the Match Charting Project links, you'll see an absurd amount of data for every charted match, down to the percentage of different shots that are hit, what direction they're hit, um, performance on crucial points, performance on points by rally length, serve direction, return depth, I mean, there's there's a huge amount of data there. And for a lot of players, we're really building a a substantial tool. For Federer, I think we're close to 300 matches charted. For Nadal and Djokovic, we've got 200. For Simona Halep, we're over 250 now. Every match since, almost every match since late 2014. Um, Almost every player in the ATP and WTA top 50, we've got double digits. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we've got almost every Grand Slam final, most Masters finals from the last 15 years or so. So it, it, it's a tremendous resource. Um, more and more people are using it as a research tool, uh, and I hope you'll check it out and and start charting matches as well, so we
1: can keep building, building it up. Is there anything you would like to add to that, Carl? Yeah, a couple of points. One, first of all, Jeff Jeff is somewhat modest about this, but it's a pretty incredible achievement that he and his co-charters have produced it's open source free to the tennis world awesome data there's there's so much more to be done with it and uh, you know I've, I've used it it's it's really also a bit sad that we need to do it because there are for many of these matches much more detailed statistics that we could have if the tennis world were more open about the data it collects through Hawkeye cameras and you know on court. Uh, stat keepers and so on but this is an incredible resource it really helps us to answer lots of questions we wouldn't be able to otherwise Uh, it's also as Jeff mentioned somewhat tricky to pick up but you can do it I probably in a reflection of my um, incredible selfishness only have charted a match that I myself played and that Jeff was kind enough to enable me to chart because I needed the stats for a story I was doing And after investing the time and effort to get set up and figure out how to do it and get comfortable with it to the point where I was able to do it pretty quickly toward the end of the match, I promptly tossed out all that expertise and haven't charted anything since. But among my New Year's resolutions for 2018 is to chart some matches. It's also a really great way to appreciate tennis more, even if you're not charting the match. If you've charted a match recently or have even thought about charting or worked with the data, you will see the court in a really abstract geometric like beautiful way like what how is this point developing where is the ball going and where are the players going what are what are they doing to try to move their opponent around and win the point point? and if you're a player i think it's even more helpful so all good things from from producing it from using the data to come up with new insights about the sport we all love
0: yeah thanks carl um yeah i, I totally agree on helping you appreciate the sport and I think that's it's one thing I don't emphasize enough about the benefit of the project from the charters perspective and something I honestly didn't anticipate when I started doing this, but I, I've i charted more than anybody else and I'm, I'm, I'm bordering on obsessed with it at this point, especially as I do every Simona Halep match. But one thing I will say is that if I'm ever at a loss for research topics, which is never actually the case since I've, I've got a list longer than i'll ever possibly cover but if if, if i'm looking for new ideas of, of things to analyze all you have to do is chart one tennis match not even a full match really but it forces you to to look at what's happening on court in a more analytical way to notice patterns and think about how you could actually capture those patterns the in a way that will allow you to study them it really opens up a lot of new directions just in your thinking. You know, apart from the fact that it, it makes those things possible by putting them in a data set in a standardized way, it forces you to think about these questions in ways you could actually attack them rather than just thinking like this sort of return doesn't seem that effective or this player seems to be better at this tactic than someone else. It it allows it sort of gives you a vocabulary to to classify shots and tactics and things like that to have a sense of how you would attack the problem and maybe even come up with a solution down the line with the data. So I hope that especially people who are thinking about using the data, you, you do some charting and and that will give you a better sense of what you can do with it. Um, I've definitely noticed in, with the people who have dug into the data uh, that the most effective results I've seen come from people who have actually done some charting as well, which I think is, is a good general rule for anyone using a data set like this, whether it's whether it's even tennis or not, is you're going to understand what's in the data better if you've actually contributed to it or interacted with it in some meaningful way. Absolutely. Uh, it's cer- it's certainly the case for me. So uh, that gives us a segue into another ATV player of note, Alexander Zverev, which Carl encouraged me to talk about because, um, as I've mentioned a couple times now, I've been super obsessive about Simona Halep, my favorite WTA player, as I chart all of her matches, which gives us this, amazingly complete data set for her for the last few years. But I think that there's so much potential in having complete data, not just finals, not just notable matches, that I wanted to do the same this year for an ATP player. And after some discussion where where Carl um, pined for more Nick Curio's data, and I got plenty of other suggestions from some friends in the tennis analytics world, eventually landed on Alexander Zverev. Obviously, he's one of the biggest young prospects in the game. He's someone who can play on every surface. He's up and coming in more than maybe anybody else in the game so my goal for 2018 in the match charting project is to chart every zverev match doesn't have to be me personally carl if you or anyone else listening wants to chart some zverev matches absolutely go for it Um, but what that will mean is we'll have tons of zverev data to work with through the season and especially at the end of the season and i hope we can get a better sense of what the capabilities of the data are if we have that complete of a data set for for one player, and maybe that's something even Alexandra Zverev will be interested in finding out about.
1: Alex, if you're listening, chart yourself.
0: Yeah, Juan Carlos Ferrero, if you're listening, we have some of your matches as well. But I think maybe the focus is more on Zverev at this point.
1: And um, we'll chart, you know, when those matches when Curios beats Zverev, as he did it several times last year. Several times? Really? I, you know, I was I was hoping you wouldn't ask that, but let's see. That's my memory. This is a data-driven <laughs> podcast, Carl. All right. He beat him in Beijing. He lost to him in Canada. He beat him in Miami, and he beat him in Indian Wells. Three and one last year. Ah. It's a nice little rivalry. Yeah, not bad.
0: And, and one we could be seeing a lot more of, I think, since they did that with Zera was climbing in the rankings, but Kyrgios was never even reliably seeded at some of those events. So um, I would assume if, if they both keep moving up at this rate, then they're going to end up facing each other more.
1: A little stat for you, in Kyrgios' three wins, he faced one break point and saved it. That is impressive, although not so
0: much for Zera. Yeah. And I guess I said earlier, I was closing the loop on Zverev, but I had one other thing I wanted to follow up on. You mentioned you liked his approach of, of going for broke on second serves. And that's another interesting stat that they showed in the broadcast for that Indian Wells match against Djokovic, that it, they showed the, the average speed for first and second serves for both players. And Djokovic was pretty typical. I forget the exact numbers, but I think his first serve was, average was 180 kilometers per hour. Um, I can serve 120 or something like that. A kilometers, Jeff. Gap. You've been away from the
1: U.S. for a while. I have, <laughs> and that is also what it showed on the broadcast. No, but I mean so as opposed I, to uh, kilometers. That's how we Americans say it. Yes, that's a discussion for another <laughs> day and a much, a much less listened to podcast. <laughs> Pronunciation so, yes. of metric units. Okay, go ahead. Sorry to break your flow. Yep. No, um... And Curious, on the other hand,
0: was something like 195 and 175, which I mean, once, whatever number the second serve was. I hope don't don't quote me at the 175, but it was something like 10% less than his first serve speed and higher than some players' uh, first serve speeds are on their own. And uh, That made me think of some of our discussions in the past. I'm not sure if they've ever been on the podcast, but the discussions about whether players should just go for first serves, or should go for first serves on their second serves. Um, Especially players who, like a Karlovich or an Isner, is so effective on their first serve and so ineffective when they're forced to do anything else that it it, it seems like a no-brainer. We've we've both done the math on this from various perspectives. and, and. it, it's arguable, I think, for, for even the most extreme players, but it's interesting to see someone come close to, to that strategy. I think may, maybe closer than
1: anyone except for maybe Karlovich has done before. Yep. Now, you said closing the loop on Zverev, but you meant Kurios. so we were talking about the Kurios. Okay. Just making sure.
0: I did. That is correct. The, the loop on Zverev is probably still open. So let's, let's talk about this cluster of players who I guess we mostly saw at the World Tour Finals pretending like they were the new big four. So we have uh, David Gofan, we have Dimitrov, Zverev, um, Jack Sock was a big factor at the Tour Finals. And I know he's another favorite of yours. And of course we have Curio. Team. Um, we have team. A team is exhausting. <laughs> but we right those those are our guys those are those are our our current n- next generation of top players um do you think we could have an era well i mean if federer ever retires or e- ever stops winning um do you think we could have an era where those guys are are dominant or are, is this just sort of a, a another segue i guess to some future generation where some
1: future group of players is is dominant you know, it's interesting to lump that group together because the age range is over six years for the for the bunch you mentioned. I mean, I think the time is ticking fast for Gofan and Dimitrov. They did have really nice finishes to last year, but I, you know, Gofan I don't think, has made a slam semi, unless I'm forgetting a good run last year, and Dimitrov, not a final. Um, and, you know, D- Dimitrov's over 26 and a half, gofan is 27, just turned 27. Like it's not, th- even with the aging of, of players, I'd be surprised if there's that much of a peak ahead of them. I mean, maybe they could pull a Vavrinka, but I, I, I don't expect them to get much past where they are now. Um, may, you know, maybe a brief period at number one, maybe a couple of slams. Zverev 20 and already number four, a lot, a lot of potential. Curios, uh, I think he's still just 22. Let's see. Uh, yeah, he's 22. Also a ton of potential. So I, I, I give the two of them probably the biggest chance to to dominate the sport because they should have so many years ahead of them. A little concern with Curios about his body and those problems cropping up early in his career. Um, and then team, I mean, he's already 24 and just isn't, really a top 20 player in my book off of clay and most of the season is off of clay so i could see him winning probably more than one french open but hard for me to see him being number one or winning much off of clay unless he you know nadal by 24 was um he had won grand slam titles on uh he'd won a he'd won one wimbledon by that point i guess and he'd made a couple of other finals. He he won the Australian Open when he was still just 22. He was regularly making the very late rounds at the non-clay Grand Slams and, and also doing well at other tournaments. So, I mean, obviously that's a very, very high bar, but there was a period in Nadal's early career when people wondered, would this guy ever be a true threat off clay? And team is way behind him at this age. So I, I'm, I'm pretty concerned there. What, what do you think?
0: Well, it's a good point about team and his his lack of success off of clay. I just checked the, the surface ELO ratings, and he's actually out, I think he's outside of the top 30 in um, hardcore ELO, which puts him two spots behind Adrian Manorino, just to
1: give you some perspective there. Um, now this is not yet updated with Con- his semi-run this past week, so maybe he passed Manorino with that, but yeah. Did, did, did he play anyone worth mentioning the last week? Uh, Good question. Uh, I don't. Oh, Tennis Abstract has not yet updated with that tournament. <laughs> uh, I I know I, I know he. Let's see. He did he did beat a couple of decent players. He also withdrew, and I think Elo doesn't penalize you for withdrawing. So that's for him a pretty good hardcourt result. But no, I mean like top t- around number thirty in the world feels right for him off of. Uh, or on hardcore and and maybe as bad or worse on grass, so there's a lot less data there. So it's um, yeah, it's 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 a problem for for his his effort outside of those three months or so where he can he can play on clay. And using my secret tennis abstract
0: skills, I I found the 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 corner in which 2018 results are currently hiding. Hopefully by the time you listen to this, it'll be everything will be updated for 2018, but. Um, his three wins before he withdrew in Doha were Evgeny Donskoy
1: uh, Alias Badini and Stefano Sitsipas okay yeah um, not going to help his ELO much uh, (laughs) although Donskoy has the ELO ELO points from beating Federer last year yeah I don't think that's going to (laughs) make much of a difference
0: but good try
1: (laughs) and Sitsipas I mean Sitsipas by the way I'm pretty excited about for if we're talking about the next generation I'm I mean, he's not in that group who's already in the top 15 or so that we just named, but I could see him being there in a year or a year and a half or so.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch him develop. Um, It's always tricky with these guys who are are more clay-core guys than than big-serving, hardcore guys as they develop. It seems like the range of possible aging curves is huge. Um, Like We could watch him get slowly better for eight years, or he could suddenly be in a slam quarter next year or something. But... He does have a really nice one-handed
1: backhand, and I know, Carl, you and I are both excited about youngsters coming up with one-handed backhands. And I wouldn't discount him on uh, the fast surfaces. I mean, he his ace percentage overall last year was 10%. He hit 20 in four straight matches in Shanghai, including the Qualies. Um, he had he had a nice hardcourt fall, uh, including on some it's, on, it's fast tournaments indoors. So, uh, yeah, he, he, could, he could find success off clay.
0: Okay, so back to the bigger picture. Yeah, you mentioned your, <laughs> your concerns with team. No, we're, we're both responsible for digressions of all times. Um, team, let's set him aside for now, but we've got these other guys, and as you mentioned, there's really two groups here. Um, the, let's call it the older half, which is Gofan, Dimitrov, guys who. I mean, it, Gofan, it, it's kind of unfair to put him in this group as. Sort of a disappointment like Dimitrov, because Goffin is not a disappointment by any stretch of the imagination. He's massively exceeded expectations to be hanging around in the top ten like this, uh, final at a World Tour Finals. I mean, if we talked about W. Goffin five years ago, no one short of you, Carl, maybe would have predicted this for him. Um, but if we if we split up this group into the let's say the oldsters and the youngsters, obviously there's very different uh, considerations about them. And in, in different ways, this, this year is a big test for all of them. If, if if the big four all came back this year, which is looking increasingly unlikely with Murray possibly uh, having hip surgery, if, if they all come back, it's easy to imagine them just sort of picking up where they left off and relegating these other guys to little four or fringy status. But my point is, 26, 2017 was kind of unexpected for everybody for these opportunities to open up, to see these guys I'm talking about be the stars at the Tour Finals. So unlike most years, you don't exactly expect Tour Finals success to translate into early season or whole season success the next year. We don't really know what to think about these guys yet. And as you point out, even with Kyrgios, he wasn't at the Tour Finals, he hasn't had a full healthy year. Um, I feel like 2018 is a big test for all these guys, like can Dimitrov stay at this level, can Zverev win masters when there's good opponents he has to face more consistently, um, I don't know, can Jack Sock do work his magic on something other than indoor hard hardcourts, can Dominic Thiem maybe start winning on hard, hard courts at all, lots of questions for all these guys. If you had to pick one, Carl, who do you, who do you think 2018 is the most make or break for?
1: I guess if we're putting it in the positive and the negative, I'd say Dimitrov, because he's going to have, he starts with a lot of points, especially late in the season and that number three ranking, which will protect him from Nadal and Federer until the semis. And he, as much as anyone did, because there was a lot of inconsistency behind Nadal and Federer, he emerged as the best of that next group. But he is also going to have to contend potentially with the returning Wawrinka and Djokovic and potentially Raonic and Nishikori a little later and most of those guys they'd really achieved more than he had before last year. So how much of that success late last year was just a relatively open field? Um, you know, he it's not like he beat Federer or Nadal, I think, at all last year or ever. So, you know, to what extent was he just benefiting from pretty pretty open 2017. I mean, you could say, like, 2018 is a big moment for them. 2017 should have been an enormous moment for them. And while they did have some breakthroughs, including finally breaking that hex of the 1990 guys finally winning some big tournaments, I'd say it was disappointing overall in, in terms of what they did achieve. Uh, Dimitrov did beat Nadal once in his career, um, but that was in 2016, and he's never beaten Federer. And I mean, I think he had some some rough. He he played Nadal really close last year, Dimitrov. But um, you know, I don't think he was even coming close to touching Federer. So if that's where he's standing against these two, you know, two probably the two best players of all time, but also in their what should be near the end of their career, and he should be in his prime, that's that's a concern.
0: Yeah, and part of the problem is that this this new era, even though I mean, it's not really just one generation, but what we're left with when you take out the big four, um, what you're what you're saying, I think, with some of the disappointment is, is that they're all playing reasonably well. So it's just that no one or two of them has emerged as a dominant force out of the rest. So they all picked up some laurels for the first time, winning the, the Masters Finals, winning um, at the World Tour Finals as well. But we haven't seen anybody come forward as a consistent week to week threat um and i i think that's what i was going for with the, the make or break nature of 2018 is are we just going to see the same thing happen again assuming that the federer continues to fade a little bit maybe um djokovic doesn't come back too strong is it just going to be another year of this mix or are we going to see Zverev or curios or one of these guys
1: really take a step forward Yeah, and I feel like Um, with Dimitrov, if he can't take advantage of the continued potential weakness of the field and injuries, that could be make or break. Whereas Zverev and curios don't achieve all the things I think they can in 2018, I think they'll still be in good position for 2019-2020, injuries notwithstanding.
0: That is true. And I
1: do want to
0: shift over to the WTA now-ish, but one last name I wanted to bring up who's always lost in these generational debates, well um, not always, often lost in the generational debates and because of injuries, Juan Martin Del Potro, who as far as I know is reasonably healthy at this point, had a fairly strong end to the 2017 season, uh, into the top 10, I believe, number 10 or number 11 in the rankings, uh, and could be a, a beneficiary of overall weakness or some of the, some of these injuries. Could this finally be the year that he comes back and wins a slam or
1: wins some Masters? I think so. I think he continued last year to suffer from some pretty bad draws. I mean, he always is going to have the potential for bad draws as long as he's out of the top four or top eight. And so some of that just kind of feeds on itself. But even relative to what he could expect to get outside of those top seeds, he was getting Federer and Djokovic early in draws a lot, it felt like. And, you know, there was that sequence of a couple of tournaments in a row where Djokovic beat him quite early in the draw and then Kyrgios beat Djokovic the very next match. Uh, So really tough matches early in these draws. Um, So I, I think if he gets some draw luck, if he gets some breaks, he can do it. But he also, even when healthy, even when he had some draw luck, had some disappointments at times. So, for instance, in Paris... He was in pretty good position to make the World Tour Finals, and if he'd done that, who knows? He could have won the World Tour Finals. He's done well there before. It was a pretty open field, and he could put himself in a much better position to have better draw draw luck this year, have a better ranking, have higher seeds. And he lost a three-set to Isner, played disappointingly. Um, he, you know, upset Federer at the U.S. Open, won the first set against Nadal in the semi, had a real chance, up a set. You know, with a, an opponent who would've, he would have been favored against in the final awaiting and then got blown off the court in the last three sets. Uh, so he hasn't always taken advantage of the sort of, you know, you really need to make, specific, make some long runs at specific tournaments instead of just going fairly deep at all of them. If you want to eventually break up in the rankings and he didn't quite do that last year. Yeah, what he
0: does have is a really nice opportunity to get his ranking, maybe not top four, but maybe high enough that he'll get some top four seeds. Because just looking at what he did last year, he didn't play the Australian Open. Um, As you point out, he had those two losses to Djokovic. So the first time he made a quarterfinal last year above a 250 wasn't until Rome. And then only third round at Roland Garros. He almost Garros. has no points um, to defend
1: until the U.S. Open, really. I mean, not almost no, but but the majority of his points came after, it looks like.
0: Yeah, which is pretty incredible for someone who ended the season ranked as high as he is. Yeah. For, for that all to come from, not again, not all, but mostly come from just a couple of months of play. So, yeah, big opportunity for him, I think. And assuming he stays healthy, I might favor him to win a major this year above all these other guys we've been talking about. Uh, it, it's tough because I feel like we're talking about 7% versus 6% or something like that. But it's it's certainly easier to imagine since we've seen him pull it off before.
1: Yeah, and he's won one before and he's made a semi at a slam more recently than any of them did. Yep, and we know
0: he's someone who can beat any of the top guys in, even in decent form. So yeah, it, it, hopefully he'll, he'll start strong this year and we won't be tempted to forget about him too much. Certainly uh, one of the more entertaining guys to watch on. And work. now 29 so, years old. 29 <laughs> years old. It's, that, that's what happens when you get older. More and more things make you feel old. Yeah. So um, congratulations to those of us who feel old. Um, so let's switch over to the WTA. Uh, One of the biggest stories of the year has been someone who's not playing since we we know that Serena Williams isn't going to come back quite yet after having her baby four months ago, I believe. So she's out of the Australian Open and we're left with all these women who basically split time at number one last year. I think we had six different number ones in 2017 and it seems very possible that we could have that happen again in 2018. Uh, You have six women right
1: now within a thousand points of number one. Which is is
0: just crazy. And in this, the live this rankings, first week anyway. of play, yeah. this first week of play just emphasized how up for grabs everything is. We had Simona Halep and Alina Svitolina win titles. Uh, Caroline Wozniacki made the final in Auckland and then lost to Julia Gerges, who's worth talking about a little bit as well. Um, but what's what's interesting to me about Wozniacki, Svitolina, and Halep winning or almost winning these titles as expected is. They're the players who are kind of tough to imagine winning Slam. And Simona, of course, I'd love to see her do it, but she hasn't. She's had her problem, she's not the strongest on hard courts. And Spitalina and Wozniaki both fall into the, the counterpuncher mold. Wozniacki obviously has had some, plenty of problems winning slams as well, despite being ranked number one for so long. So that leaves all these other women who maybe can win slams, maybe can't be ranked number one. It's, it, it's all a big mess until Serena comes back, or, or so it seems. Um, Carl, I have to give you credit for a a good call early in the life of our podcast, probably in March or April last year. We were talking about what the end of the season field would look like in the WTA, and you were stumping for Spitalina as a top five or or WTA finals level player at the end of the year. I was skeptical
1: at that point, and here she is, top three, I believe, still. I think I was also Um, stumping for Wozniacki, although I think you were stumping for Halep as number one, so you get credit, too. Yes, I do, um, which, which I, strong,
0: I I think that if, if we look at the proper statistical methods for evaluating projections, my method of picking Halep to win everything all the time is strongest yes. from a, an academic statistical perspective. Uh, so, so what do you think, Carl? Is it, are we going to see one of these counterpunchers finally come through and win a slam, or are they just going to sit at, at the top of the rankings and win everything else?
1: I think they certainly could. I mean, with Serena being out, Venus a threat, and I would love to see her win. But, you know, you, you you can't be sure what to expect at 37, turning 38 in six months. So a lot of the, you know, Muguruza, Pliskova near the top of the rankings, obviously more aggressive players, and Muguruza's won a slam. But, hey, Kerber won two in 2016, She's not that much more aggressive than the players we're talking about, and she beat Serena Williams in one of those in the final, and beat Pliskova in the other, both in in good matches where you know she absorbed a lot of winners and, and hit a lot fewer than her opponent, but still won. So I I could certainly see any of the three of them winning. Um, it it feels because of the recent nature of the WTA and just the the sense that the player who is better at being aggressive, tends, tends to win in, in these matchups, late in slams between top players, that, that Muguruza and maybe Kvitova and Pliskova have a better chance. But with the field still kind of thinned out, you know, Azarenka's not going to play the Australian Open, and she's been out for a while. is uh, still not really back to her best after her comeback last year. I, I, think, I think they certainly could. I mean, Wozniacki's made two major finals, and... Hallop's made two and, and come really close in both of them, so I, I I would certainly count them among the favorites.
0: And and of course there's always in a field like this that's so open there's always the possibility that we'll end up with a final four of Spidolina, Wozniaki, Hallop, and of course Monica and Gillespie. <laughs> and in that case in that case all, all they've done is win five matches like they would at a premiere and one of them has to win. So, I mean, when we're talking about whether something could possibly happen in a field like this, there, there's always some scenario that would, would force it in a way. Um, but to your point about Kerber, that's it is true that she's one of the more passive women of late to, to have slam success. But I, I, I hope I'm remembering my numbers right from one of, the, one of the articles I wrote for The Economist in the past year. But I think I found that her her level of aggressiveness, which is a match starting project generated stat, basically just the rate at which players hit winners and unforced errors per shot, she was much less aggressive in 2017 than in 2016. Um, maybe much is overstating it, but there was a, there was, there was a definite difference there um, that doesn't seem huge and I mean, we might be talking about 10% or maybe even a little less than that. But there isn't a huge difference from players on the on the counter-punching side to middle and from the middle to most of the aggressive side. And someone like Justine Henna, who I've been watching a lot of lately and, and, and getting sort of retroactively excited about her tennis, um, she wasn't super aggressive. I mean, for a player of her size, um, she was pretty aggressive. But she was about middle of the pack and obviously had tons of success. Kerber was with within 10 percentile points of, of the middle of the pack and when she was winning two slams. But when we're talking about Halep and Svitolina and to an even greater extent, Wozniacki, it's players who are in a, the extreme 20th percentile of, of counter-punching, and that's what I question. I mean, I would love to see those players win. I I enjoy watching those players more than I do the Ostapenkos of the world. but. It will be interesting to see whether this this year is finally the time that one of them can convert that into actually winning a slam. And if that requires them to be more aggressive and Wozniacki for years, people have been saying all she needs to do is be more aggressive. Come to the net more. Um, don't take so much off of her serves. I mean, people were saying that about Kerber before she was successful, that she would take so much off of her second serve. So Wozniacki has occasionally shown signs of being more aggressive. Kerber obviously was able to, to, to be a little bit more aggressive as well. And they've had some success there, but I think with Halep, we're watching that happen as well, where Payhill is encouraging her to become more aggressive. She, she looked more aggressive in the matches we were able to see in Shenzhen this past week. But as has been the case with Wozniacki, it, it's tough to take someone's entire game style and say, this isn't working. We need you to come to net more, hit more swinging volleys, step inside the court, do all these things that aren't what got you here in the first place and it remains to be seen whether whether that can that can actually happen whether that can be successful at all
1: i think you raised such a good point though that they might not have to play through a top aggressive player or a player like ostapenko who's playing at like a top 5 level for that fortnight in paris last year and they might just be able to win a major without changing their game or without playing much better than they have been just cuz the draw kind of opens up and yeah with 3 with with them the four of them taking up with the three of them taking up three of the top four seeds they could easily um you know reach the semis without having to to necessarily face a top player and the other players being so inconsistent like maybe that's how how the slam the slam slump breaks for them
0: yeah that that's always possible um
1: And, you know, just speaking of just how, like, open the field is and how, how quickly the quality can drop off, just looking at the live rankings, like, number nine in the live rankings, Kanta, she's won four matches since Wimbledon. Mladenovic has lost 14 straight matches. She's number 11 in the live rankings. Sloane Stevens won the last major and is at 13 in the live rankings, but I don't think she's won a match since, or she hasn't won more than one or two, and she's still not at 100%. I mean, there's just, like, a lot of mix of players who haven't done much recently and also are dealing with injuries um, who who could really open up some some spots in the draw.
0: And there's also some players who we haven't mentioned yet who could be really big factors this year. And you mentioned Kanta, who is is always kind of lurking as someone who could go on a run and just win everything. Plus, you mentioned as well, but the two other people I wanted to Mention. As, I, as I say this, I'm up to three. But the first one is Gergis. and We were talking about Gerges at at, toward the end of last season as someone who was a threat. And since our last podcast, she's done almost nothing but win. She won in the, the Tournament of Champions in Zhuhai. She just won in Auckland. Um, and won in Moscow just before Zhuhai. Yeah. Exactly. Yep, so three tournaments in a row for her, and she fits the mold of the more aggressive players who stand in the way of the people who are ranked above her. We've also got Caroline Garcia, who I believe profiles considerably more aggressively, um, who had a big end of the last season as well, winning in Wuhan. And then we have Ashley Barty, who's still outside the top 10, I believe, but um, made the final in Wuhan. had. She's almost like the Del Potro of the WTA in terms of their 2017 results. She won an international title in February, but apart from that, didn't do too much until the grass court season. Uh, She is strongest on grass. She did have a third round showing at the Australian Open last year, but I feel like she's someone who, every time she walks on court, could potentially win, could easily go on a run, like I I mentioned with Conta. Um, 2018 might be a little too early for her. She only returned to being a full-time tennis player last year but clearly the potential is there. She's sort of the extremely quiet WTA equivalent of Nick Kyrgios, I think, as, as an Australian with sky high potential. So in a way this year could give us a little more clarity on who the best players are, but in, in, another, in another sense, you can look at easily 10 players and, and explain why they will be top three at the end of the year. So it, it's going to be crazy to see how it all plays
1: out. Yeah, just just to reiterate your point on Gurgis, Ger, excuse me. Um, lots of lots of ways to pronounce those G's, I guess. She in this tear she's been on, she's dropped just two sets. She's beaten some really good players, including Wozniacki, who was playing really well uh, in Auckland before losing in straights in the final. Um and you know, at the US Open even Gerges had a good run to the fourth round and then lost in three sets to Sloan Stevens who ended up winning. Um, you know, ever losses recently have been to also Stevens, Rodwanska, Stris- Stris- <laughs> Sorry, my pronunciation is, is not great tonight. Um, so, you know, good wins mostly dominating and then losing to really good players in close matches, it's it's a really good profile for being a big threat in Melbourne.
0: Yeah, one thing I wanted to go back to, uh, I just was talking about Halep winning her title last week, I mentioned that it, I, from what I saw in the matches, we could see the bizarre ending of the Shenzhen tournament, uh, Halep beat Katarina Siniakova in the final. Siniakova is another player with a lot of potential, I don't know if she quite is up to the level of the women we've been talking about, but she could easily end the year top 20. But Uh, The point now that just happened yesterday was it rained so much in Shenzhen on the day of the final that they ended up moving the final inside to a court with no cameras at all. So there was no broadcast, no stream, nothing at all for the final of a WTA tour level event featuring the current world number one. Um, And all due respect to Siniyakova, this is a match that could conceivably have been between a current and former number one in and Maria Sharapova, had Sharapova won the semifinal against Sinekova. So as it turned out, it was a pretty high-profile match that's completely lost to the world of tennis fans. What could have been was a huge match for the first week of the season that I guess they could have potentially treated that differently because Sharapova seems to break all the rules for for tennis, but point being, it's it's gone. Nobody got to see it. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. How about that?
1: Freudian slip, I'm sure. Uh, Yeah, I mean, Halep Sharapova, first round U.S. Open, like night match, Arthur Ashe, national television, uh, possibly the most high-profile match of the women's tournament, although there were so many great ones later in the tournament, too. And then potentially playing first week of the season with Halep now number one and not televised at all. I, I just find it so... I mean, it's, it's, it's sad, but at least it's also funny. Uh, ben Rothenberg, who tweet, tweets and writes about tennis, had the good line that Darren Cahill, who's Halep's coach, should have periscoped the match, live-streamed it on his phone. And some of the people responding to the tweet said, hey, anyone on staff at the tournament could do it. And that's what I find so funny, while it's also sad. It's so easy to collect video and transmit it live these days. There are so many options. This isn't a live video option, but I got as a gift for not very much money last year a device that you just like clip to a net post and it takes video of both sides of the court and it's it's synced and it, it gets audio to, um, you know, their GoPros. Every phone can transmit and, and stream aud- audio and video. So the idea that they couldn't figure this out and also that they wouldn't have a rain plan in place. I mean, this is a world in which it rains sometimes and in, w- in which that means that tennis can't be played outside. They had a plan for how to finish the tournament on time. Why they couldn't have also had a plan for getting some kind of of TV feed or video feed is just beyond me. But it feels like you know this might be a prompt to get the WTA to make sure that that's in the rules with tournaments now that they have to have provisions in place for it. Maybe there wouldn't be as much of a push if it weren't the world number one who happened to make the final. But I mean, you're trying to chart every one of Hallop's matches and. You know, there's reason to think, well, maybe early in a tournament for some weird reason, the, w- the number one player in the world, there's no video, but the freaking final, come on, people, that should be available to tennis fans around the world.
0: Yeah, it's it's absolutely ridiculous, and this is, in, in some ways, there are such big steps we made. I mean, it's, we're into the third or fourth year of the ATP providing free live streaming for almost every single challenger match, including... Some final round qualifying every week so the fact that we can tune in to live streaming of challenger qualies but we can't reliably watch a final if it rains it's it's pretty ridiculous
1: yeah and i'm thinking uh, also about all the work you and your match charting teammates have done on you know archived matches and and video being available sure of slam finals but also sometimes of more obscure matches on youtube from decades ago when when much less was being televised and video was, was archived much more inconsistently. And the fact that that's possible but this isn't is is just so frustrating. Yeah, and it, while we're on this topic for just one more note, um,
0: another thing to the credit of the ATP, um, I know a lot of people didn't love the fact that, that Tennis TV split into two products, which ends up being more expensive and WTA TV still has its issues. But one of the nice things about the new tennis TV on the ATP side is they've added a ton of historical matches. I'm not sure if it's it's 100%, but they have maybe every Masters final and a lot of quarters and semis uh, back to 2001. And they promise uh, some matches from the decade before that in the 90s coming this year, which. The ones I've watched are super high quality, they're complete matches, unlike some of the ones on YouTube that are missing games here and there. Um, so you can go back and watch all these Sampras-Agassi matches, um, I mean, so many interesting players, so many great matches, including Juan Carlos Ferrero, uh, who I mentioned earlier as, as Vera's coach. Um, WTA-TV is a newer product, of course, and they had their hiccups just putting anything online, but... I hope they will do the same, and if you are a WTA TV subscriber and you agree with me, I hope you'll do what I do and, and send them, send their support some messages, strongly encouraging them to add some archive footage. They've even got the feature on their site for WTA Rewind or something, and they've got some 2016 Premier Finals, but come on. I mean, this is the the whole WTA organization we're talking about. They must at least have, have the rights to some video footage from... 10 years ago 15 years ago and the great players including Serena and Venus who were dominant in that era and I know I'm not the only tennis fan who would love to see those as
1: as has been the case with ATP as well yeah and it would be such a boon to the match starting project yeah, yeah absolutely um, so
0: as I said at the outset of this episode we've got four months of tennis to cover and, and what an hour to do it in so of ridiculous to think we're covering everything there's a lot of 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 maybe issue topics as opposed to player or, or preview type topics that i haven't even touched on if, if you haven't looked at, at the tennis abstract blog for a while i had a couple pretty big pieces in the last month or so one on uh, on using match writing project data on the effectiveness of lobs and the opportunities to hit lobs and the best players in those situations and also trying to quantify the, the effect of just winning one more marginal point which was surprisingly huge so hopefully by the time we're back with our next episode i'll we'll have some more some more material of that nature and we can dig more into the analytical side of that but um, setting that aside for future episodes carl is there any other
1: topics you wanted to touch on before we sign off for a month uh i'm curious what you make of hopman cup if you saw any of it what you think of the format what do you think of the the sort of the quality of players they get and um, how how meaningful it is or not? It's funny because I intended
0: to ask you the same question, and I'm guessing we come down on opposite sides <laughs> of this one, um, as is often the case with, with exhibition tennis. Honestly, I don't think I even know how it works. And I I read the rules. And I get, there's, I, mean, I get there's teams, and they, they play some singles and some mixed doubles, and it's a round robin or something, and then there's a final, and they probably rig it, so Federer's in it. I don't know. Um, I have a, such a hard time getting engaged with, with exhibition events. I will say that of all exhibition events, it seems like the most engaging one. Uh, obviously, the, the, the fans are into it. It's got a ton of support in Perth. Um, as you point out, they, they get great players, including Federer the last two seasons, I believe. And we were talking about Kerber, and it's easy to forget about, about Kerber's success that's not even two, four years ago now, but that German team's incredible, that they managed to get Kerber and Zverev to show up for, for an exhibition. So it seems like a lot of potential there. I've watched a couple matches over the years, although not any yet this year. Um, and it, it seems like like high quality tennis, so so great. But it it is it is weird to have an exhibition event competing against two-level events. So we've got, if you count Hotman as one event, we have seven, I think, in the first week of the season. And obviously so many players are making choices based on appearance fees. I mean, You have to imagine players who show up for Hotman Cup are getting pretty big appearance fee paychecks. And when you look at where players go, like Wozniacki to Auckland and Halep to Shenzhen and Sharapova to all the Sharifov is a special case with a ranking right now. Um, Halep and Wozniacki went to international-level tournaments when they could have competed for twice the points in Brisbane. So it, Doha, of course, has Middle East money behind it. So in the past, there's been far more top players like and Djokovic last year uh, in Doha than in the other tournaments. So it, it, it's weird that the tennis season kicks off with exhibitions, non-exhibitions, Players going in not entirely sensible places, so I'm not a fan of that. I, mean, I like the fact that there's so many tournaments. I don't like the fact that um, there seems to be forces other than the motivation of ranking points and peer competition. Since, as a fan, that's all I can really care about. But I'm assuming you have an argument for why Hopman Cup is is great and engaging, and you'd like to see more of that
1: sort of thing. So, Carl, I'm ready. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think you summed up my argument well. I don't need to say it. Uh, I mean it. It's it's not that it's not all praise, but it did seem like the players really cared about it. Here's a few things I think it has going for it. I love that the players get guaranteed matches and I'm sure appearance fees matter, but I think that has to matter a ton a ton too that you know if you go you're going to get 3 singles matches and 3 mixed doubles matches and you're going to get to play against at least some top competition. I mean, I'm not sure I think the men's field was a little stronger than the women's field, but Kerber and Belinda Bencic were both recently in the top 10. And, uh, you know, on the men's side, you had Federer, Jack Sock, Zverev, Goffin. Um, The players really seemed to get into it. Uh, The the matches seemed pretty intense, and it, it felt like it was combining the best of exhibitions with the best of... Well, maybe best is strong, but some of the, the pluses of exhibitions with the pluses of real competition of players having a good time and cheering each other, but very much playing to win. Um, and I, I just think tennis is at its best when the men and women are together, and not just together like at the same event, but but connected in, in a stronger way. Uh, it, it's just great to see these these teams forming that, other than the occasional. Odd mixed doubles pairing don't really happen. I don't love the national element of it, and while I think that does motivate some of the players, and you know maybe even more so in an Olympic year, it it also limits who can play, and probably means it would always have to be an exhibition because it's not really fair that if you don't have a male or female counterpart from your country who can compete, that you wouldn't be able to compete. But I, I do also think that tennis could stand to have more variety in its format. That there is something very much the same about having generally the same group of players competing in the same general system each week where it's it's a knockout tournament. Why not have some other setups? Otherwise, it just feels like Groundhog Day sometimes. So, you know, I love the tennis tour. I don't want it to all be Hopman Cup, but I think it's better when it has more of these formats and when men and women can compete with each other, and when tennis can can bring some of the positives of team sports into the game.
0: Yeah, in theory, I I agree with a lot of that. That the ex- experimentation is good, and we're seeing a lot of that in this uh, run up to the Australian Open. So we've got Hopman, there's a tiebreak tens, there's a something fast four. We've fast four seems to be gaining some traction since that's what they did at the Next Gen Finals in October November. So. I totally agree with that. Um, it, it can generate some really entertaining stuff. What it always comes, always comes down to for me is that it, for some reason, I just can't get interested enough to actually watch it. And, and maybe that's just me being weird, or maybe that's just me being obsessed with the match running project and not having a spreadsheet set up for mixed doubles. I don't know. Um, it does sound cool. And in, I, I totally agree tennis would be better if there were more mixed doubles. And if there were some Coherent way for there to be a team element. I'm not sure that world team tennis or IPTL or all the variations of that are that coherent option, but there's definitely something there. I mean, obviously the whatever makes Davis Cup so exciting and magical. It would be nice if if that could be translated into a smaller scale format that might just be Hopman Cup. We might be talking about the same thing. Um, and you make a really good point about the guaranteed matches. I didn't didn't think about that. And for, for those of you who are ATP buffs going back, I don't know, 10 or 12 years, I think it was, there was the brief ATP experiment with tour events having round-robin components. So I believe there would be groups of, groups of three players in the main draw who'd play, sort of like Zhuhai is now, with the opening round-robin, where they'd all play two round-robin matches, and then the winner of each group would advance to the semifinals, I guess, so that those were really complicated tournaments because there would be sort of a play-in round of 32 and then the round robins and then semifinals and finals, so that's probably not the solution either, but it, it does seem like players are always talking about they, they, want match, they want match play experience, and that might be why Halep or Wojniacki chose to go to a, an international instead of a premiere, in addition to the, you know, probably $500,000 appearance fees they picked
1: up. So it's another way to yeah, have tournaments and, feel less sparse toward the end. I mean, as much as it's exciting when you're into the semis and finals, it also just means there's almost no matches to show at right at the time when it's the weekend and you're at sort of the climax of the of the tournament.
0: Yeah, and that that is another benefit of the team format is if it's structured like Hopman Cup. You've got three matches just to play the final. Yeah. Uh, so that's yeah. In theory, I can certainly see why it's compelling and yeah thumbs up for experimentation um i I would i'm waiting
1: for the exhibition event event that actually makes me figure out how to watch it so uh, (laughs) jeff Jeff is one of the few few tennis fans who was not excited by the federer nadal doubles pairing in september last year at labor cup
0: yeah i actually wrote a whole a a whole article that was sort of supposed to go in the economist that um explained why labor cup was inane and stupid and then I rewrote it and realized it wasn't really inane and stupid and I couldn't really, part of the problem with the article, which is why it never was published, um, is that I couldn't really figure out what I had to say about it, but I could never totally get away from my underlying assumption that it was inane and stupid. <laughs> so you can <laughs> you can see I had a problem getting to a thousand words for that one. Um but yeah, it does, it does seem like this is something that's, that's going to grow. We, we are in an era of experimentation, and one of the things that... I don't remember whether we were able to talk about this before Labor Cup, but the, the fact that there's this small number of extremely bankable stars means that I, I think people are going, to tr- are going to work on new ways of, of coming up with these sort of hybrid exhibitions. So you have an excuse to pay $2 million and get better to show up, but you also have something that's not just a silly exhibition. I mean, that was one of my thoughts about Labor Cup is that it seemed like a really intricate way for Federer and his agents to create this branded thing that would make a ton of money. I I, I can't get away from that as at least one of my assumptions of what Labor Cup is. And a lot of these other events seem to be that's definitely an element and you know I don't have any problem with huge amount of mo- amounts of money in tennis it, it just means that it's you know, it, it, it's not part of the tour it's not part of the season and it's, it's it's hard for me to get engaged with something that doesn't have a direct effect on the bottom line and in tennis the bottom line is rankings and and slam finals
1: and year-end finals appearances and it's just irrelevant to that all right, maybe uh, next time in Chicago you'll you'll give it a shot and come around. Maybe we'll see. Um, I mean, I do think it, it's a problem long term for tennis that there is this bankable star situation, and that events like Labor Cup could exacerbate that. And something that is more inclined to create new stars or put the focus more on the sport than on a few individuals is a plus. Uh, I did like at Labor Cup that some of the players who probably were less familiar were, you know, right alongside the the mega stars and cheering them and in strategy sessions with them and being cheered by them and coached by them, and that that you could see not very different format really helping to connect, you know, the Roger Federer with Denis Shapovalov with, um, you know, Francis Tiafo in the public's mind, that they, they're all being part of the same event, elevated all of them instead of, you know, just elevating Federer.
0: And to go back to Hotman a little bit, since you raised so many points about Hopman Cup, the, the one thing I mentioned that relates to what you're talking about with Labor Cup as well is you said that the the mixed doubles format limits who can participate, which might be true in the Olympics to some extent or, or some hypothetical event where where you had to use rankings as, for entry. But in Hotman, as an exhibition, you know they can invite whoever they want. So if they can get Wozniaki, which I believe they have, all they need to do is find someone who owns a tennis racket with a Danish passport.
1: Um, hey, Frederick Nielsen, Wimbledon Fred champion. Nielsen there.
0: Yeah. Exactly. And there was maybe three years ago, um, Aga Radvanska played Hotman, and there, I think Janowicz played it with her one year, but then Janowicz pulled out the next year and there was a, there was a Challenger-level Polish player whose name I couldn't pronounce and now can't remember at all. So Hopman can have whoever they want show up. And then we kind of saw that with Tanasi um, Kokonakis actually playing this year. I mean, a very credible player and competitive at that sort of event. but. Ranking wise doesn't really belong um, in the same way that there's you know, or Tiago didn't really belong in quotes um, at, at Labor Cup, but it can put those players very much in the spotlight, as we saw with Freddie Nielsen, of course, had some name recognition from the Wimbledon title, but that always spawns these articles, at least in the local press, about you know, who the hell is this guy or this is how hard this guy has been working or this is how good this player is despite the fact that his ranking has never been above 200 in the world. And that is one way to get people engaged in tennis is to get them behind the underdog or the underdog prospect or the, the heroics from their countrymen or their grandmother's countrymen or something. Like There's so many angles to get people engaged with a certain player, to turn people into a fan, but focusing only on the top players shuts those down. But there's so many other opportunities to expose fans to number 212 in the world who could be a really engaging, interesting player. Yep. So let's call that good for today's episode. Um, Yeah, we covered four months, no problem. Yeah, four months. So we'll check back again in four months. We'll both take (laughs) some notes. Um, in in some more seriousness we will be back in about a month unfortunately my travel plans are horrible for this year's Australian Open so I'll be mostly off the grid for the next four weeks, so when we come back Carl I will not look at any news any results at all, I'll just get straight on the phone with you to hit record <laughs> and I'm looking forward to hearing you explain to me what happened in the Australian Open
1: we'll be talking about uh, grand, newly Grand Slam champ crowned Grand Slam champs, Simona Halep and Nick Kyrgios.
0: I will, I will take a Grand Slam from Nick Kyrgios if I can also have one for Simona Halep. Presumably, it'll There'll be, be a in mixed doubles, doubles together.
1: together.
0: Oh boy, I'm not sure if I'm if I feel so strongly about that. But those I would watch, actually, <laughs> those I would watch. So. Thank you, Carl. As always, thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, in In the next month, while you're waiting for us to come back, I hope you will dig into Carl's growing archive of 30 Love podcasts, as well as take this opportunity to chart anywhere from one up to a thousand matches. That's entirely up to you. Um,
1: if anyone charts a thousand matches between now and our next episode, you can be on that episode with us. <laughs> Yeah,
0: I'll uh, I'll even say a hundred. Okay. That would yeah a hundred is doable. But yeah, let's say that chart a hundred matches between now and then, and you will get the amazing opportunity to be on a podcast episode with Carl and I one time only. Uh, we have this is a no guest policy podcast, and we're willing to uh, make one exception for hundred match charts. Ado, if you're listening, um, I get we'll have you on if you chart hundred. I just won't be as surprised if you do it. Um, So thanks everybody, hope you enjoyed the Australian Open and we will come back with another episode in February.